My name is Frankie Lewis, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie, a writer with The Daily Emerald. This is the second episode of our new series, Spotlight on Science. In this series, we'll bring in some members of the University of Oregon science community and ask them to explain their research in simple language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Scott Fisher, astronomy lecturer and outreach coordinator here at the UO. We spoke about his research at Pine Mountain Observatory near Bend, the upcoming solar eclipse this August, and why it is important to fight science illiteracy. Let's get to it. Okay, we're hot. Hot mic. Hot mic. All right, right. right, so be careful. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, thank you again for uh, joining me. This is really really awesome experience. Um, I went to ask you, too, what is your official title? Because I was looking around on your LinkedIn and other stuff. (laughs) You have a lot of – you wear a lot of different hats. So how would you describe it? Indeed, lots of hats. Let's see. Gosh, I haven't been asked this in a while. My official title is – uh, astronomy lecturer and outreach director, okay. and so that's what I was. Would, you know, when I came to UO, that was the position that I was in. Um, things have morphed a little bit in the four years I've been here. I've accepted a position called the director of undergraduate studies in the physics department, which is a, a very fancy sounding word. But um, I'm the advisor for the physics majors here at UO, and so uh, really my job is split into thirds. I teach uh, an astron uh, gen ed astronomy class every term, and and I'm also the advisor, you know, kind of this director of undergraduate studies. And then um, I'm the associate director of Pine Mountain Observatory, our observatory also. Oh, and so cool. I split my time sort of split in three ways. How is uh, associate director of the observatory treating you? How's that job I love it, you? man. That, that's one of the reasons why I came here. <laughs> um, it turns out that um, y- you own an observatory. And I say this in my class, that that's our observatory in um, central Oregon. It's about 40 miles east of Bend over on the dry side of the mountains. And, um, and that's going great. Over the last um, two years, uh, my little research team and I, we've, uh, and with the help of some staff folks, we've uh, built a fourth telescope up at this observatory. And the key point about this one is, is that if we can get some funding to upgrade the internet connection between here and there, we will be able to use that telescope from here on campus. It's built. It was a robot built from the beginning with the whole idea to do remote observing. And so maybe as early as fall term, if we get some money coming in this summer, um, we'll be able to actually observe from here. And and that was been a big deal, big, big, big project. And I know one of the big things in astronomy is, I mean, you're moving away from the traditional kind of telescope lens, everything. You have to be there to look through it. And this more digitized. We can just look at it on a computer. How is that? change the field. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, we're deeply embedded in the sort of the new way, uh, even at our little observatory. Um, it, it is, let's see, how has it changed it? Um, revolution, you know, basically, as a new technology comes along, you can um, do new projects and uh, uh, make observations that you couldn't before. And the advent of CCD cameras, you know, again, electric, just 
I mean, that we have the camera on the back of our new telescope has the same sort of chip as your cell phone does, just a super duper version of, of it. Right. Yeah, your the cameras in the cell phones cost a couple hundred bucks, and ours cost fifteen grand. Um, oh, okay. you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But but specifically made for seeing things that are extraordinarily faint, right? You know, we want to go deep, what we, what we call it. And so, um, look, the the advent of this new technology lets little telescopes like we have up at Pine Mountain do legit frontline research. And that's what we're trying to do. And so describe that frontline research. Like, What's an example of a project you're working on? Oh, absolutely. We've got um, two projects that we're going to do um, this summer. Um, one is a, our sort of our own project, a project that my students and I are working on. And um, we are interested, um, you know, we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way, and you can look up and see the Milky Way. And by the way, come to Pine Mountain and see the Milky not, Way. Not an actual candy bar. Though. Yeah, not the candy bar. Yeah. It's also a delicious candy bar. Yeah. Um, but um, we're interested in uh, galaxy, or excuse, galaxies that are not the Milky Way, um, because if we study those, we can learn about our own in some way. And it turns out that gal- some galaxies live in what are called galaxy clusters, which is just like it sounds, a few hundred of these beasts are orbiting each other and then some of them are sort of lone wolves that live out mm-hmm. isolated in their own and and what we've done is um, we're doing a little project where we're comparing the ones that live in the clusters with the lone wolves and do they have you know if at the same age do they look different or some big or some little and it turns out that little pine mountain might be able to uh contribute to this project because we on our camera we can see a sort of a big part of the sky wide field and so we can take a deep image of a moderately big part of the sky which is different than the big telescopes where i used to work which see hundreds and thousands of times fainter, but just a tiny little bit of the sky. So hmm. we want to survey. We want to take a, make a big map. Right. And, um, okay. So there's one thing. And then, so long answer, but a good one. And then the second project is also exciting. Um, uh, a colleague of mine is has been awarded telescope time on a on a telescope called Sophia, which turns out is a 747 airplane with a huge telescope stuffed in the back of it. Wow! A, a wonderful, a crazy, great project. Wow. And that telescope is an infrared telescope. And so Sophia in September of this year, Sophia will be literally be flying around the Western U.S. observing very young stars in the infrared. And our colleague, Ralph, I think he will literally call us from the airplane and say, okay, are you ready? Observe number four right now. And we're going to do simultaneous observations. They're observing in the infrared, and we're observing in the optical, you know, the visible that that we can see. And then after the fact, we compare our data to see these are sources that are known to change. They get brighter, they get dimmer, and we want to sort of track to see if the infrared and the visible, are they in sync with each other, or are they not in sync? And so this is like real research that we're doing, even with, um, a, you know, a sort of a moderate-sized telescope that we have. And I think this leads into the general questions, like, you're so excited about this stuff, oh, and this it. is like, this is this is your life. When did you know you wanted to become an astronomer? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I was a little bit unusual in this, I think. Um, excuse me, I was a physics major, and um, so let, let me even go back one step further. Sure. I was, pre- I was a science-y kid, you, mm-hmm. you know, I, um, but not uber, like, in it. You know, I always, you know, I wanted to build things, uh, 
I, I remember I took a, a VCR apart one time and tried to put it back together. That right. didn't work very well. <laughs> yeah. um, took a phone apart one time, tried to put that back together. It didn't work very well. Um, yeah, I was trying that. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. There. You're in there, man. Yeah, and um, I, you know, built. I, I told the story in my class. I. Um, I dammed up one of the creeks near our house and flooded a, uh, uh, you know, flooded Oops. a field one time. That that was engineering that went wrong. Um, just, just I was curious, man, and and I think that um, that curiosity, you know, what it, it, it was never squashed, and and I think that that allowed me to, by the time I got sort of to high school, you know, I wanted to like. Let's build circuits and let's build oh and optics yeah, yeah lenses they do weird things and so um but so I went when I went to college I was a physics major and took an astronomy class the first term of my senior year as an elective and just never looked back I fell in love with it right then I thought wow here's a branch of physics that I found just utterly encompassing just so interesting and um just it turns out that physics and astronomy are very closely related and i stayed um just one extra year as an undergrad double majored and then went to grad school in astronomy and really never looked back from then awesome um and just describe a little bit of that and maybe in briefly because sure. i know there's some really big connections yeah. with physics but um, for people maybe who don't understand, I mean, the plants are moving. To them, it seems like, oh, the plants are moving really slowly or they're yeah. not really doing much at all. How is there any kind of physics interaction going on there? Sure. No, no. It, it turns out that physics is what describes how we know they're moving and, and things like that. So uh, to me, physics, um, in some sense, I would say physics is sort of the language of the universe. This is mm. how the universe works. And if mm. we... And if we understand physics, then we sort of understand how the universe works. And so um, the, the connection to astronomy is at a very deep level. You know, at, I mean, astrophysics right, is, right, is, right. is a part of it. But, but we use the fundamental sort of laws and basics of how physics works and apply them to the universe, orbits of the planets, composition of the planets. Why are there rocky planets close to the sun and gaseous planets farther out? And now another really exciting topic are, of course, our exoplanets, planets that we've discovered around other stars. Hmm. And so super tight connection between the two. I'm curious, why are gassy planets farther away from the sun? I, 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 you're <laughs> you gotta, right. I, 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 I should have. <laughs> right. That was a total, a total setup. I didn't even mean it to be. Um, it, it turns out that our solar system and our star, the sun, mm. um, we formed at the same time. And we formed mm. out of a, 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 literally a cloud of gas and dust that collapsed. And as the cloud collapses, it starts to spin and it starts to heat up. Turns out there's some physics involved there. Mm. And um, it, it forms a disk. What do I like to call cosmic pancake? It, it forms a disk of this material. And the, literally the sun and the planets form out of this disk. So as the, the heavy stuff sort of filters to the center of it through gravity, by the way, it's all gravity. It's, right. it's basically gravity that's driving the entire process. The heavy stuff moves to the center, and at the center, what we call a protostar forms, the sun before it turns on its fusion. Okay. But even as that's happening, that thing is given off energy. It's given off a little bit of heat, and basically it melts the ice and all of the what are called volatiles that okay. are close to the star, but that stuff can actually live farther away. So the hmm. gas and the ice gets pushed away from the inner zone. What's left over is the rocks, okay. and that's um, where Mer Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and the asteroids formed. Okay. And then a little bit farther out, the gas sort of stayed there, and there, boom, you get Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. 
Hmm. Okay. So there you go. After uh, an entire s- semester of planet planner formation in one <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> Great. That's Crash Course 101. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, um, moving on to maybe a little different topic. This is kind of more current events, uh-huh. though. Um, but there's been a lot of buzz going on that there's going to be a solar eclipse in Absolutely. August. Big deal. Um, so I pulled this from Wikipedia, but um, this is like, this is just a little intro to sure. it. This eclipse is the 22nd of the 77 members of the Saros series, 145, the one that also produced the solar eclipse of August 11th, 1999. So they, and they predicted, they went on to predict solar eclipses in, you know, hundreds of years in advance. Yeah. How are you able to predict a solar eclipse, something that's so specific, yeah. hundreds of years in advance, exact days. Yeah, even. down to the down to the second. Yeah, we know these things. And by the way, you might not realize it, but this is an excellent follow-up question to what you just asked before. <laughs> that is right there. What you described is the connection between physics and astronomy. We understand how gravity works so well that we we have incredibly accurate measurements of uh, the orbit of the moon, how the moon orbits the the earth, and how the earth and the moon orbit the sun as a unit. And um, we understand that stuff so well now that you can actually program that physics into a computer. And by the way, and then you can say, okay, computer, crank up time so it's running a million times faster than it normally does and and show me when these eclipses are going to happen. I mean, I've seen them, they've projected them like literally 10,000 years in the future. And, and um, that works because we have such... Um, a really, really good understanding of these orbits, it, you know, because look, what the, what is in? Let's real quick. Let's just back up. What's yeah. a solar eclipse? A solar eclipse happens when the moon goes directly in between the sun and the earth. Right, which is different from a lunar eclipse, which is the opposite. Gotcha. Kind of. Lunar eclipse is opposite. The way to think of a lunar eclipse is you have the earth goes in between the sun and the moon. It, it, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but um, the earth casts a shadow just like you do. You go outside in the sun today, it's a beautiful sunny day, hold your hand out, you cast a shadow. Dude, the earth does too, and so does the moon, <laughs> by the way. And, and, and what a solar eclipse is, is when you get to stand in the shadow of the moon. Mm-hmm. And that only happens again. These it's pretty rare. Um, it turns out it's somewhere on the surface of the Earth about once a year. One of these things happens. Mm-hmm. But I think the last one that touched Oregon was like 1979 or something. Mm-hmm. And the next one is you know, hundred years in the future or, okay. or something like that. Yeah. But, um, but, but to, to answer your original question yeah. is that we can predict these things because we understand how well we understand the orbits of the moon, the earth and the other planets so well, we can do that. Right. Um, where will people be able to see this? Yeah, so so here's the scoop. Um, it turns out not in very well in Eugene, oh. which nor Pine Mountain, which is a bummer. Oh, we rats. we miss it by less than thirty miles. Oh, so there's wow. there's a there's a path which is called the Path of Totality, okay. and it's about seventy miles wide. Okay, and it comes on the center of it comes on lie on shore at Lincoln City. And then it goes right across central Oregon. Hmm, okay. So it, it turns out that that little school up the road um, in, in Corvallis <laughs> um, is going to... So Corvallis is in. Okay. Uh, Salem is in. Okay. Albany is in. Really? Yeah. So the line is really fine then. It's pretty this. fine. Yeah. It's really only... It's a. It's about... 
the 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 width of the of the path, which by the way is the width of the shadow, is about seventy miles, and wow. so Portland misses it. Huh. But just south of Corvallis to just north of Albany, yeah. Really? And then there's that, and then that's you know goes across the center of Oregon, and then through Idaho and across the U.S. and it actually exits the U.S. in Charleston, South Carolina, and so the huh. eclipse path goes right across the entire U.S. this huh. time. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay. Um, and there's no, if we're in Eugene, obviously we won't be able to see it really. Yeah. Is it like, will it get darker at oh, all? Yeah. Is there any kind of effects yeah, that you can yeah. feel? No, good question, man. Okay. So look, as a matter of fact, I actually feel a little bad. I wished it, there was going to be more happening in Eugene, right? Yeah. Was, but we, damn it, 20, yeah. like 24 miles we missed yeah. it by. It turns out here in Come Eugene, bang. yeah, yeah get, I get know. Stuff if only if you could get the orbits, were changed slightly by a little bit. The um, so here in Eugene, we're going to have ninety nine point one percent of the sun will be covered by the moon. So look, okay. that's already going to look cool. Yeah, it will get darker. You know, it'll look weird because it's going to be kind of the middle of the morning, but kind of oh, it's dusky yeah. around here. Um, but what you will see, even at the maximum eclipse, is still just a tiny little sliver of the sun, right? Mm. The moon will have most of it covered, but just that little yeah. sliver. Now, the, the kick in the pants is, is that um, because you still see that teeny little bit, you miss all of the totality stuff, which is it, the stars come out at night, all right? You, you literally have a night that lasts about two and a half minutes. The birds roost, and you get to see the corona of the sun because it's blot. you know. All of these cool effects only happen in that path of totality. Mm. And so, you know, we sort of missed it by that much. Um, but because of that reason, what we're concentrating on here in Eugene is to, is to say, folks, look, be careful with your eyes. Even when it's 99% covered, it's still going to be darn bright. And the only true safe way to look at it is through a solar filter. Um, but if you have any chance at all to get up into this path of totality, please go and do that. Because it's, it's, it's really sort of a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing. That's awesome, and yeah, I can't wait for that. I think I'll just be up here in time, so I might have to make an hour drive yeah, up to uh, please do. Corvallis yeah. maybe to see that. Um, all right, anyway, moving towards um, maybe your roles here closer to the uh-huh. UO, um, you were profiled in the Chronicle of Higher Education as um, a person who is really good at bridging the gap between science and maybe non-science majors, yeah, we'll say. Yeah, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it so important for non-science majors or even non-science professionals, for that matter, for sure. to understand science? Um, that, no, that's a it's great question. general question. No, but, no, yeah. no, no. Look, but no, this is something I've actually put some thought into. Um, I'll tell you what, it's sort of a, it's a little bit of a personal, I wouldn't say crusade, but something that I'm real interested in. And, and I think it's because, um, you know, I've been here at UO for four years, but before that, I spent about 10 years on the staff of one of the biggest telescopes in the world. At the time I was there, it was the fourth biggest. So I think it's the number seven now or something. And um, which telescope the, the Gemini of Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And um, and so while I was there, part of my job was I was called the outreach scientist. And that means I was the guy who, if we made a big discovery there, I got to talk to the reporters and, you know, did a lot of press type things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also gave literally hundreds of talks to the public. And and it I think that it just gave me a really real idea of what the public knows 
right? And and um, and and it turns out that I feel so spoiled being an astronomer because we all sort of love astronomy. It's an easy sell. I mean, I, I even joke with the other physics professors. It's like, well, astronomy or particle physics? Hmm, yeah. You know, which one can I? It was an easier to talk about. And and so, um, but but you know, I came in with a really interesting, I think, perspective on that. And you know, I had uh, 225 students in my class last term, and there I counted there were literally there were five science majors. Wow. And that's it. And so it just made me realize that, you know what, the, the students in my class, they're not me. They're not the nerds that, you know, were hardcore damming the Dan Creek and building, the, you know, flooding the thing and taking the phone apart. They're everybody else. And so, um, but I think it is absolutely of critical importance that that audience, everybody else, realizes science is deeply embedded in our lives. I mean, look at us sitting in this room full of technology right now, you know, and you could be able to hear my voice on your, you know, on an MP3 player or download it, you stream it and that sort of thing. That's science that brought us all of that stuff. And I actually, at one point in class, I bring my phone out and hold it up and say, you see this machine you hold right here in your pocket? That's science, right? That went, in, that went into building that. And so I want us to, all of us to realize so I think the value of science in some sense and what it contributes. And so that was really my, when I came and interviewed for the job, I said, look, what I want to try to do is promote science literacy, which is very, which is a big thrust and something we do really well here at UO. So it was a good fit. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges, I'm sure you face this a lot. Um, with trying to get um, non-science literate people kind of up to speed is you, you can't water down. You have to balance watering down the material with kind of keeping the integrity of the discovery sometimes. That's, How do you balance that? Oh, man, that's a great question. And actually one I've not been asked often. That's a very astute question. Um, look, um, I would say that you you have to, first of all, step back one step farther and say, you know what? Um, what what does uh, what's the purpose of the class? Is the purpose of the class to create new physics majors? That's not my class. That's not astronomy one twenty two. One twenty two to me is let's expose a broad swath of the student population to some conceptual astronomy because look we're interested man you go out and you look up sometimes and the moon's there and the other time it's not and Orion is up sometimes and sometimes it's not and you know, comets come by and things like that. I, I say to the students on really the first or second day of class that I win the class if six months after it, you see something, an astronomy article come across your newsfeed and you feel comfortable reading it. I win if you do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the, 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 the MO mm -hmm. of the class in some sense. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your, your question, but, but, but sort of why I did it is that reason. Right, yeah. okay. Um, and then I think maybe this will be the final question. Um, is there anything, I always like to ask this to yeah. a lot of people, um, is there anything you've never been asked that you wish someone would ask you? It's kind of a tricky question. That is a tricky question. It's, it's, it's basically, I'm, I'm cheating because you get to ask your own question. Yeah, like, I know, I'm trying to pick one. But yeah. no, well, let me see. Let, um... I am not. I don't. I am not sure about that because I mean, as you can imagine, the things that that 
I get asked often about are popular science level stuff. Look, look, black holes, did you like Interstellar, Star Trek or Star Wars, aliens, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, New alien movie coming out. Yeah, yeah I know, which yeah. looks good. Fine. Yeah. By the way, Interstellar, great movie. Okay, um, yeah. But look, yeah, again, willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I would have to think about that. I Off the top of my head, I can't think of a question, but I will say that I'm very happy that you asked maybe this is it yeah. is that why is it important for the everybody to understand the value of science and that's becoming a big one for me and I want to make sure that even gentlemen like you and ladies that are anybody who is not a science major it's still important to you because it is so embedded in our lives we don't even think about it anymore Yeah, something like that Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks. And look, bring me me back. I'm happy to do this anytime you want. Totally. This has been great. All right. Awesome. All right. This is our second episode of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Scott Fisher from the Astronomy Department for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thank you for listening.